Ayelet Marinovich, your host. Welcome back to Strength in Words, a family enrichment program for parents, caregivers, and infants and toddlers of all developmental levels. Each week we get together to sing a few songs, discuss some ideas for play, and outline some insight about early development. This series is a time for you to be together and to feel like you're doing something good for and with your baby, small child, or multiple young children. Please follow your child's lead. I am a speech and language pathologist, and I specialize in work with very young children, but this is not to be confused with speech therapy. This is what I call family enrichment. All suggested activities are meant to be enjoyed by your baby under close adult supervision. For a more complete story of strength in words, please listen to my introduction episode or visit my website, strengthinwords.com. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's nice to see you here today. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's nice to see you here. We can start by saying hello to the people who are with us. Hello to Ayalet, hello to the singers, hello, 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 hello to the babies, hello to the toddlers, hello, 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 hello to the children, hello to the grown-ups, hello, 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 hello to your friends, hello to my friends, hello, hello, hello. Since I don't know your name, I'll help you sing the song and you can fill it in. Ready? Hello to your child's name. Hello to your name. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Today we have a special guest on Strength in Words, Suzanne Flint, the Chief Architect and Library Programs Consultant for California's program Early Learning for Families. Let's welcome her to the show. Hello to Suzanne, hello to the librarians, hello, 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 hello to our new friends, hello to our old friends, hello, 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 one last time, hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here today, hello everybody, hello everybody, it's nice to see you here. So I am so thrilled to share this conversation with you all. Suzanne is an absolute powerhouse and is a wealth of knowledge about early literacy, early learning, infant and toddler education, and of course, parent education. I was so happy to have the chance to sit down and speak with her about the ways libraries are changing. The movement she's played a big part in is largely based in California, but is part of a national and international trend towards making libraries much more family-friendly and family-centric places in all senses of the word. So I invite you to step into our conversation. Libraries in general are such an amazing resource and I think undervalued by a lot of people. Well, and also I will say, you know, in the last 25 years, libraries have also significantly changed. I mean, 25 years ago, your little one would actually not have been welcome in a library because he's not yet reading and he would be making noise and libraries were all about, you know, quiet and, you know, erudite 
study. I was originally trained as a child life specialist, which is a very unique subset of social work. I mean, it was originally designed specifically to help children navigate the experience of being hospitalized. But I also have training in child development. And then because I was in the hospital setting, I also went on to get trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. So I got a lot of training in massage, in hypnosis, in guided imagery. And it really opened up this whole world of all of us who want to support and help children and families. You know, we're joining in at one very specific moment in time. There's a whole skill set about how to do that in a way that's honoring of that particular child and that particular family when we don't have the luxury of knowing more about them. Strategies for how we can be less should and less about us saying you have to figure out how to use our services and more about how to join with family. So that's how I started in my profession. It was already fairly eclectic. And then there was a pediatric early literacy program that was started at Boston Children's Hospital called Reach Out and Read. And by this point in my career, I was at Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. And there were two interns there who wanted to start the program. And so I became responsible for starting this pediatric early literacy program. I began to help other clinics around the state grow it and ended up creating California Reach Out and Read. And the other thing that I did that was unique, even for the National Reach Out and Read program, is that we began to partner with public libraries to deliver this program. So medical clinics and public libraries. And then I got tapped by the state librarian at the time to basically say, you know, libraries are already interested in changing the way they serve their communities. And we're really beginning to appreciate that there are lots of emergent literacy skills that happen long before little ones are actually reading and that libraries have a stake in that game and that we should be a part of that conversation. So I shall hasten to say that early learning with families in California, we did not singly and solely get this movement going nationally. There were other programs that had started to happen in public libraries. So we just sort of began to highlight what was going on around the country to address this age group. And then the more we worked with libraries in California, the deeper the dive we went. And we went beyond just, you know, it's nice to have programs, but what are your spaces like? And have you even considered the fact that families are coming in with strollers and, hey, you might have to rethink the Dewey Decimal System because some harried parent bringing in a two-year-old is probably never going to have a chance to make it over to your parenting section. Why don't you move your parenting books into the children's section? And, you know, all kinds of things about, you know, if you're really thinking about servicing this group, what really are their needs? Not what do you think they need, but what do they say they need? So that kept building. And then just two years ago, after years and years of working on this, it also became really clear that we needed to change the way library staff interact with families. Because for the most part, they they start with that same bias. So I can hardly wait to work with kids. Don't particularly want to work with their adult caregivers or parents. Don't know how to talk to those adults. Kind of nervous about talking to those adults. So we've partnered with the Brazelton Touchpoint Center from Harvard, and we are just now finishing a curriculum. We now have 20 library staff around the state of California who are trained to deliver the curriculum, and we'll be now delivering that training to about 25 more libraries this coming year. And it's all about being strength-based. It's all about doing a much better job of listening to families and being responsive to them because libraries love to just give you tons of information. <laughs> and sometimes that's almost worse than not giving you anything. Parents just get overwhelmed. Yeah. So so in a nutshell, that's what we've been working on and what we're doing. I think in so many ways, 
we as parents and caregivers in this day and age feel so much that we're caught in this huge, overwhelming nature of information. And if there is a place that we can go to be provided with a free service, a free resource and information. I mean, what is a library other than a house of information (laughs) with librarians who've been trained in some way to work with? Yeah, young children and their families, because of course we yeah. know that that is the key. Yeah. Uh, well, but- it, it, it's interesting because we discovered that in California, public libraries are second only to public parks as the place most frequented by families with young children. And I think it's partly because we've now made the spaces more welcoming. Yes. Not every library, let me hasten to say, but an awful lot of libraries in California are more welcoming. And you're right, it's free. There are all these other resources there. We also now have structured spaces. We have toys in libraries for kids. We have programs where they're going to be noisy and making noise. All of that's, you know, very new. And so I think parents feel like it really is an option to go there. And most importantly, I think the opportunity to connect with other parents, which is even more powerful than whatever books we might have on the shelf. Absolutely. So what are some of the things that parents and caregivers can expect to find specifically? Well, as I say, I wish it was uniform in every single library. So I always have to be careful about what I promise because I've gotten emails from parents who said, hey, you said every library is going to be great. And we just went into a library and they were really mean to us. So it's like, oh my God, I can't promise that everyone is going to be this way. But I think at at the minimum, we have tried to make distinct spaces set aside where it is clear from a little person walking in the door or their adult care caregiver this is a place for them we you know it's there things are down on the floor there are chairs that both a parent a comfy chair that both a parent and a child could sit in we have changing tables hopefully in both the men and women's restrooms we've got oftentimes lactation spaces set aside for moms there are toys we have programming that's focused on we have baby lap sits we have music programs we have a lot more play going on in libraries if we're much less attached to the fact that you've got to come and do something with a book. I think most librarians at this point really appreciate that there are all these skills that don't look anything like reading, but are actually the building blocks for reading. So that's been pretty fully embraced. And we've done things like Folsom Public Library. They took all of their picture books and rather than arranging them by Dewey, they put them in order by categories. So pirates, princesses, transportation, insects, Once they had done it, they were blown away because what it meant was that children and their adult caregivers could find books easier. It also meant that their circulation went way up because you may have come in for Eric Carle's Very Hungry Caterpillar, but all the copies were checked out. But since it's not next to a whole bunch of other books on insects... Your other books on insects didn't circulate. Now, when you come in looking for Eric Carl and he's gone, it's like, but hey, here's a whole nother, here's a thing on butterflies or here's another thing on caterpillars or whatever. And then the other funny thing that happened for staff is within a week, they knew what parts of their collection they need to, to beef up. Every book on transportation was checked out within the first week. And I was like, hey, we, we need more picture books on trucks and trains and automobiles and airplanes. Surprise. And, yeah, Great. yeah. And then as I say, there's also the idea of what about some adult material in the children's section for parents who got limited time. Many people have let go of the whole issue around food in the library because if, if you're going to have little ones, they got to have a snack. Um, you know, they can't last long without little breaks of food. And so all of those kinds of things are going on in the library. 
I hope the true test for me about us being truly family centric and friendly and the final block that we're kind of knocking over, I think, with this training curriculum is the attitude of staff. Because an awful lot of library staff went into libraries with no real interest to work with the public. When you think historically about the tradition of librarianship, it was really about the stuff. It was about acquiring the collection. It was about curating the collection. It was about protecting and circulating the collection. The public just came in and checked it out and left. You come and go. The real thing that has become clear is, I think, for libraries to remain relevant, it's less about being sort of a gatekeeper around stuff. And it's much more, how can we become facilitators of individuals' own self-discovery, wherever they are in their journey of learning. How do we help them become lifelong learners, continue to stay curious and interested in the world? It's more about you as the person coming into the library than it is about how our library works and how you need to know how to navigate it. We want to make that invisible. So it's intuitive or it's easy or we're much more approachable if for some reason it's not quite straightforward how the place works, but just really getting families more comfortable with coming and being there and changing the attitudes of the staff to be much more supportive about, you know, if we really want to serve children and families, it means toddlers are going to have tantrums and we don't shame their parents around that happening. And that, that's been a big conversation about the fact that, you know, a a two-year-old tantruming is not a reflection of a parent's bad parenting style. It's also not a reflection of a misbehaving two-year-old. Developmentally, it's a child who has no resource left, you know, is still figuring out how to self-regulate. Yes. You know, these, these are not children trying to get on your nerves, which is oftentimes how it was reflected back to us by library staff. You know, this kid is just being manipulative. They've got their parents wrapped around their fingers and they're just, you know, throwing a tantrum to get us all to jump to their thing. And it's like, actually, that's not what's happening. But, you know, you can't, that's not how you teach people to appreciate that concept. So it's that balance of walking them along through the developmental process and hopefully helping them be a little more. It just seems like we've all gotten more judgmental and quicker to make assessments of others. I think especially in the United States, I find it quite ironic how we think about and support parents because I feel like there's an awful lot. We say we have family values. We do very little in this country. Once you have your child, it's sort of like good luck with that. You're kind of on your own. Have fun. From the moment it pops out, in fact, yeah. And once you've given birth, we could care less, it seems like. So... (laughs) which I find really sad. And I, and I also think that's the other sort of appreciation, which I also find is interesting because a lot of librarians are parents themselves, but being very understanding or tolerant of other parents, I think is also really hard. And I think it's a reflection of sort of our societal misunderstanding and intolerance of the parenting process. It's sort of like assumed that it comes naturally and that if you're a good parent, it's because you were just born to be a good parent. Nobody sort of, you know, really talks about how hard it is to parent. One of the things that I love about the touch points approach to child development, Dr. Barry Brasselton was a pediatrician and he was really one of the first developmentalists to scientifically show that human development doesn't happen in this nice, smooth, linear path that, you know, when you take child development 101, all those charts, you know, should be walking by 18 months, should be on and on and on. And he really codified that there are very specific times when essentially children will fall apart right before they make their next big developmental leap. And when they fall apart, they usually lose 
a skill they'd acquired. And that can be very disconcerting to parents. And parents tend to go to one of two places. Something's wrong with my kid or something's wrong with me as a parent. And that will happen over and over and over throughout the cycle of raising a child. And so the whole point of touch points is, as a society that surrounds a child and their parents, it's at those moments when a family is actually most vulnerable, at those moments of crisis when the kid is falling apart, when the parents are uncertain about what's going on. And what they need is not for us to rush in or fix it or tell them what's going on, but support them so they can keep falling in love with their child. To me, and I, it's maybe an oversimplification, but I really do think we are asked to fall in love over and over and over because the person that your child is, is changing. Who they were as an infant is not who they're going to be as a toddler, who's certainly not who they're going to be as a preschooler, a school age, and an adolescent and an adult. You're, you're having to meet this person anew, you know, constantly and figure out how to parent that person. And that's the other thing I think, you know, lots of parents say, well, you know, I'll be fine with the second one. And, I, and hopefully this doesn't, I mean, I think you seem aware of this, but. So I hope I'm not saying anything shocking, but lots of times parents will say, oh, I've got it down. I've already had one. And I, clearly I do think there are some concerns and stresses that are, are less so when you've had your second child. Sure. But hey, unless this second child is a clone of the first, it's a whole nother person. And then, and of course, talk. we're never the same parents or the same in the same circumstances than we That's were the right. first time. So I just, I just feel like we're incredibly hard on parents, and it's an incredibly challenging, rewarding job. And I think yeah. you're absolutely right. It's something that we have to figure out again and again mm -hmm. every day of our lives, if we're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, because you've mentioned earlier about how so much of what you're trying to do in these libraries is to create an environment that supports early literacy and early yeah. learning for families. And I wondered if you might just specifically talk about what some of those areas are so that yeah. families can be more aware of that. So I, I will say I have some mixed feelings about this because some of the programs that were originally developed really well-designed but they're very didactic. And again, I always feel like we have to walk kind of a fine line between, I think, laying on a whole bunch of more shoulds for parents. Sometimes, though, when we teach parents didactically some of that information, they then feel like they have to turn around and teach their children didactically. Right. And I think that's the quickest buzzkill <laughs> for learning out there, yeah. especially when little ones are little. They're going to have plenty of years ahead where they're going to be sat down at tables and given drills and flashcards and all of that. I really do think the first five years of life are about helping children be curious, keeping them curious, keeping them falling in love with learning, and being these great cheerleaders that are asking them questions and asking them open-ended questions and being fascinated, you know, not worried about correcting your child. You know, it's not about getting the facts right as much as it is about encouraging them to talk and encouraging them that you think the way they think is interesting. And some of that is happening in libraries to a greater or lesser extent, and some of this didactic exercise is still happening. And I think it's a it, it can be a nice balance. So every child ready to read are story times that are set up with the intention that families will be a part of the story time. And while the librarian is going through a traditional story time, they also point out 
aspects of the story time that are building on literacy. Like when we do this, when we have words that rhyme, children get to hear a similar sound and it's happening in different words so that they understand that that sound is not tied just to a single word, but that sound can be repeated in lots of different words. And, you know, they'll make other didactic comments as they're reading aloud. And then I think introducing play into libraries has been exceedingly important. And also without didactically teaching families or children, it gives an opportunity for some of those skills to just begin to naturally evolve and grow. Though it's interesting, a lot of parents in the U.S. anyway will say, and I know they say this to preschool teachers all the time, you shouldn't just let my kid play all the time. You know, they need to be getting school. And it's like, actually, the research says the best thing you can be doing for your kid is let them do a lot of self-directed play. I think through those mechanisms, we, you know, the fact that we are, we still tend to be, libraries tend to be very print-based still. We are getting beyond that, but we have lots of books. We do a lot of teaching around reading. We do a lot of encouraging to parents to read to their kids, even if they themselves are struggling with reading, to talk about the pictures, that that's a huge part of building literacy. We do all kinds of things about, you know, talking about talking to your kids and what that means and, you know, giving sort of tip sheets about here are rhymes that you can sing together in the car or for bath time or when you're at the grocery store, you can make your grocery list together. You can point out colors when you're in the grocery store, trying to give more concrete tips rather than just sort of placating statements about how it's important to read to your child every day or it's important to talk to your child every day. What can you tell us about the way that music is integrated into programs like Rhyme Time? Little people just love music. (laughs) And and I think originally it started because they were doing infant and toddler story times. And of course, little ones aren't going to sit still. And it became a really great strategy is when you start losing your audience you bring them back in by getting them on their feet and having them jump the wiggles out and sing along with you. So I think it sort of started from a sort of performer's point of view and not losing your audience, but it became really clear how much that, you know, rhythm and rhyme is tied to language acquisition, is tied to early reading comprehension. It was really important to begin to incorporate those skills. And the librarians originally who were sort of reluctant to do that felt themselves lacking in their own musicality. That's another sort of conversation we've been having in library land because, well, because there are a number of people who go in to become children's librarians because they're actually very good performers. And they love performing and they love sort of being the star and they do some great programs and that's got a place. But I also think it's really important for librarians who may be not such polished stars to still do the story times, to still incorporate music, because that's a really important message to who may not be fantastic performers or incredibly musical, but by God, she's doing it in the library and my kids don't seem to, they're not the connoisseurs we expect them to be. So they're not really distinguishing between the high performance and the, the, you know, perhaps less polished performance. They're just loving it all. So it, it gives some permission to parents. And I think it's another thing about even when librarians do sort of a very traditional story time, that it's okay not to do it perfectly. And to mess up so that parents can see that, you know, this isn't about a flawless interaction. It's about having fun with it and exploring and being curious about the process. So, but yeah, music has become a big part of library story time. Thanks so much, Suzanne. You're most welcome. Thanks for being here. See you later. What will you do the rest of your day? 
Goodbye to the babies, goodbye to the toddlers, goodbye bigger kids, goodbye all the siblings, goodbye to the grown-ups, goodbye to the singers, goodbye I yell it, goodbye to this music we laughed and we played. We're getting very clever, this is what counts, being here together. Thanks so much, everyone. For a transcript of the interview or instructions to make and ideas for how to use your very own DIY tunnel reading nook and free download, you can head over to my website, strengthinwords.com. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher as well as straight from the website. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe, rate, and review on any and all of those forums. If you feel inclined to support what we're doing here at Strength in Words, you can do so by visiting my website and clicking on the link to either make a one-time donation or by becoming a patron of Strength in Words on Patreon. I'll be here again next week.